Welcome to the Plutonomics Podcast with Lori Cammie and Barnaby Levin. The word Plutonomics means the study of wealth. It's our mission to educate, to help clients think about their goals and how they might benefit from working with an advisor to achieve them. But more importantly, it's to make sure our listeners understand both the pros and cons of any issue so they can make informed decisions and increase the odds of finding the right answer for them. You see, it's not who's right or wrong, but knowing there are no disinterested parties or unbiased opinions and that where you sit depends on where you stand. The challenge to making good decisions is to start by questioning one's assumptions and to break free of our prejudices because the truth usually lies somewhere in between. There are always two sides to every issue, both of which have merit. Last week, we spoke about China and how hard it is to know just where to begin. We considered some of China's many accomplishments as a people and a nation. Their many luminaries, from Confucius to Sun Tzu to Mao Zedong, but also how, through much of their history, dating back 3,600 years to the Shang Dynasty, they've been at war. And, we said, to truly understand their actions, we need to put ourselves in their shoes and think like them. This week, with that in mind, we'll discuss the prospects of our working together, either as frenemies or if that will even be possible. And we'll discuss the implications of either outcome on investing. According to FactSet, in May this year, China saw its largest equity inflows ever, and more than 10% of their outstanding sovereign debt is now in the hands of foreigners as well. When just a few years ago in 2001, when China was first welcomed into the World Trade Organization, they had little or no allocation at all in equity indexes. Today, it accounts for more than 40% of the MSCI Emerging Markets or EEM index, and an overweight allocation in anything else related to Asia Pacific, meaning that today, if China sneezes, everyone else catches a cold. So one of our first questions is, as the world's second largest economy, why are they still in something called an emerging market index? By any measure, China is a fully developed nation and at the very least should be part of the EAFE, which stands for the Europe, Australia, Asia, and Far East Index, and along with Japan serves as the benchmark against which most international funds are measured. But if you do own the EEM or any other emerging market fund, and if you don't want that much exposure to China, make sure you choose one that specifically says ex-China. Also, going back to your comment, Lori, about catching cold, in 2015, I wrote an article called The China Syndrome. It was a play in the movie with Jane Fonda, Jack Lemmon, and Michael Douglas about a nuclear meltdown. And I wrote it right after a 200-point, 10% drop in the market to 1875 on the S&P that was triggered by an economic slowdown in China. Today, as we pass 4,400, that may seem quaint. <laughs> but it's always relative, isn't it? And at the time, it was the worst five-day fall since September 2011. As Einstein said, we saw how with every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And after benefiting for so long from their growth, it was a reminder that the sword cuts both ways. And of the impact, China's transition then from an export-driven to an internal consumption economy would have on our own. 
In the meantime, in 2020, while we exported $124.5 billion in goods and services to China, we imported more than $434 billion for a total of $560 billion in trade. And according to the U.S. Census Bureau, for the first five months of this year, we're on track to top $600 billion. The bottom line then, if that were to be disrupted, there would be serious consequences for us both. So who do you think it would hurt more? As you say, they export more to us than we do to them. And yet in 2019, when the U.S. accounted for 24.4% of global GDP, that number has already fallen as of last year to only 15.9. So they've already been growing to some degree, at least at our expense. And even worse, if there were a disruption in the short term, I'm not even sure it would matter to them. That is, if they're hurt. There seems to be this growing willingness on the part of Beijing to risk the growth and profitability of their blue chip companies themselves. If there's ever a question of power or influence, whether inside or outside of their own borders. That's what Clay Shirky says. He's a professor at NYU who served as their chief information officer at NYU Shanghai for three years and now served as a guest economist with Paul Craik. Paul has been doing a series on China and they both think there's a conscious decoupling of money, power and star CEOs that's intended to keep the Chinese Communist Party power and influence inside their borders. And if either of us ever delist a company of theirs here, China can relist it in Hong Kong or Shanghai and therefore limit access to foreigners even more. So in the big picture, I think an economic disruption would bother us more than them. And after 3,600 years of military conflict, that's one every 10 years on average, the odds are there will be another one. In fact, Xi Jinping himself, when referring to what they call their age of humiliation, he said China missed its chance in the wake of the Industrial Revolution and suffered humiliation under foreign invasion. We must not, he said, let this tragic history repeat itself. We will never again tolerate being bullied by any nation. Like I said earlier, if and when, and this conflict could be triggered by any number of flashpoints already in evidence today. From Sun Tzu's use of deception, where all's fair in love and war as they hack into our grid and steal our most valuable IP, to our commitment to defend Taiwan, when China has repeatedly said any attempt to seek independence means war, to blatantly reneging in the promise they made England, that is, that Hong Kong would retain all autonomy, rights, and freedoms for 50 years once sovereignty reverted back to them in 1997. So the question, of course, is when. And the truth is, one can never know. That's true. According to Dornbush's law, crisis always takes longer coming than you think, but it happens much faster than you thought. And when it does happen, there won't be any warning. And at that point, it will be too late. So all we can do is prepare in advance and make sure people know and understand what they own. China is indeed walking a fine line between nationalizing and privatizing their own businesses. They want their economy to grow, of course, and so are encouraging consumers and industrial purchasing inside their own borders. They just want it to be clear that the state's in charge. 
and capitalism is only allowed if it serves the interests of the people. As Ray Dalio says, those in the capital markets have to understand their subordinate place in the system or they will suffer the consequences of their mistakes. And yet he does feel that in the end, China will walk that line and won't go too far if it means shooting themselves in their own foot. And despite the news of China cracking down on some of their own global gorillas like Alibaba and Ant Financial, they aren't the only ones reigning in big tech, fintech, and online education, especially when it comes to monopoly power and data security. Well, you're right. In education, for example, where parents there are feeling trapped in the same endless cycle of educational one-upsmanship that we've felt here for so long, or the way Didi went ahead with its U.S. listing even after Beijing warned them not to, Didi probably should have known better and, at least in part, brought that on themselves because maybe they didn't have a choice or they needed the money. But as far as I'm concerned, their U.S. bankers are really the ones to blame because they shouldn't have given the green light if it meant it was at the expense of U.S. investors. In any event, China has begun what they call a new development phase that, according to Xi, includes common prosperity and stability. This is to address some of the discontent felt by their middle class. And while people have sought to align with what they believe are the party's priorities if they wanted to make money, that's getting harder to anticipate. And as you suggested, in some sectors, private or foreign capital may no longer be welcome anyway. Regulators made an example of Didi. But like here, anything considered crucial is risky for an outside investor. And the same as for us, who can blame them? No country wants to be dependent on any other for something they need. It's just that in China, they can change directions in the blink of an eye, which makes it hard for anyone here or there to predict. It is. In general, if someone's investing in emerging markets, we recommend that they invest in broad indexes rather than individual companies whose fortunes can change overnight through no fault of their own. In fact, Gary Gensler, the chair of the SEC, wrote, I worry the average investor may not realize that they hold stock in a shell company rather than a China-based operating company. In addition, China's aging demographics, a result of their one-child policy initiated in the late 70s to reduce overpopulation, is having an impact now. And given the regulatory risk and arbitrary control we just described, It warrants caution. This leads us to conclude there's just too much uncertainty to maintain much, if any, exposure in China at this point. And as for what to do in advance, so we're not caught by surprise after it's too late, we've already spent some amount of time in some of our earlier podcasts discussing alternative investments. We think that would be a great place to start. Well, thanks for listening. And if you have any questions, please reach out to Lori or me And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please share it with friends and family so they can enjoy it too. And please join us next week when we'll be discussing Gen Z and some of those influencers we mentioned in our podcast on demographics. This is Lori Cammie and Barnaby Levin for the Plutonomics Podcast, signing off. 
LK Wealth and Asset Management and LCK Wealth are a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC, and advisory services through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk and there is no guarantee that the process or investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and any investment opportunities referenced may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced are from sources believed to be reliable and any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. Neither LK Wealth and Asset Management, LCK Wealth, or Hightower shall in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data or for statements or errors contained in or admissions from the obtained data and information referenced. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced and such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of LK Wealth and Asset Management and LCK Wealth and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.